This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hello, my name is Andrew Keeley and I'm a partner here at Charles Russell Speechley's. In this podcast, I'll be talking to Steve Carey, who is head of our construction and engineering group, about an important new Supreme Court decision, Bresco Electrical Services and Michael J. Lonsdale. So, Andrew, this is our first podcast. I'm not convinced that we're necessarily competing with all the great podcasts, the likes of Peter Crouch, etc. But who knows, because what we're going to be talking about today is the implications of the Supreme Court case of Bresco v. Lonsdale, which was handed down on the 17th of June. Now, it's probably safe to say that we're not the only people talking about it, because if you were to look at all the, the chat around it, every person that's worth their salt in relation to construction law is looking at this case. And the importance of, of that is because, in essence, this case deals with the tension, either actual or imagined, between two statutory regimes. And this has been a common theme for quite a few years as to how you reconcile these two, if you can. The first statutory regime is the one that certainly us construction lawyers are particularly comfortable with, with um, which is the Housing Grants Act in its various forms. And, and that, as we all know, at the heart of that, or at least one of the hearts of that, is the adjudication process, which is an adjudication at any time. And interlinked to that is the whole issue of cash flow and the whole point of, of adjudication and the other elements of regimes in the housing grants provisions are about cash flow, ultimately the pay now, argue later issue. And there's a whole body of laws, as we as practitioners know, dating back now 20 years, where the courts are very keen to enforce this regime and to really consolidate adjudication, which of course it has been, because adjudication now is, is the preferred for domestically forum for many disputes. That's the first regime. And the tension, if there is any, between that regime is found within the insolvency set-off rules. For the purposes of this podcast, at least, they, in essence, amount to the fact that when you have a company that goes insolvent, gone into liquidation, the insolvency set-off rules say, well, you've got to look at all of the claims between the two parties and come to a net balance between those. And if that net balance is in favour of the creditor, then the creditor has to prove that in the insolvency proceedings. Ultimately, it can draw out of whatever assets are available to the creditors, but as we know, generally on what is called the pari passu rule. And if that net balance is in favour of the insolvent company, then obviously the liquidator can pursue that as hard as the liquidator can, because obviously that then goes into the creditor pot. This case, the Bresco case, effectively span round two arguments. And these arguments were heard, first of all, in the first instance, then in the Court of Appeal, then in the Supreme Court. Uh, and I'm going to ask Andrew in a few minutes just to give some detail to that. But what are these two arguments? The first one was what was called the jurisdiction point. That effectively was saying because of the impact of the insolvency rules, it effectively metamorphosed these kind of claims into assessing what is the net balance. And therefore then the argument goes that the jurisdiction of the adjudicator under a particular subcontract disappears. It, it Effectively, it's extinguished because what you're now seeking to determine is the net balance. That was one of the arguments. The second argument was the argument 
which was labelled, certainly in the Supreme Court, a futility argument. And that said that, well, what's the point of all this? Because if you get a successful adjudication, uh, judgment or an award from the uh, adjudicator, if you're an insolvent company, company in liquidation, then so what? Because actually you're never generally going to get that enforced. You'll have wasted a lot of time and effort and cost. What's the point of it? It's futile and therefore we're not going to allow this to happen. They were the two key elements. So, Andrew, could you just explain to, to our listeners a little bit more about how the Supreme Court addressed these issues in Bresco itself? Yes, thanks, Steve. Well, it's a, a sad story, but the facts themselves are not unusual and indeed may become more common if the economy does take a turn for the worse following COVID. Bresco Electrical Services was an electrical subcontractor who entered into a contract, actually a sub-subcontract, with Michael J. Lonsdale to carry out electrical installation works. The works were at premises in London, occupied by Rio Tinto, the global mining group. Bresco left the site in December 2014 in somewhat controversial circumstances, with Bresco and Lonsdale both alleging wrongful termination against the other. Lonsdale said that Bresco had abandoned the project prematurely, forcing them to pay £325,000 for replacement contractors, while Bresco said Lonsdale had never paid for some work they'd done. So Lonsdale actually owed Bresco £219,000 in unpaid fees plus damages for lost profits. Then in March 2015, Bresco became insolvent and entered liquidation. Over three years later, in June 2018, Bresco gave notice of its intention to adjudicate against Lonsdale. Bresco claimed payment for its completed works and loss of profit for works which had not been completed due to the alleged repudiation. And Tony Bingham, the well-known adjudicator and columnist for Building Magazine, was appointed by the IRCS to decide the dispute. Faced with the somewhat unappealing prospect of defending an adjudication brought by an insolvent claimant, Lonsdale decided to seek an injunction from the Technology and Construction Court to prevent the adjudication from proceeding the adjudicator having declined a request for him to resign. The parties agreed to stay the adjudication in the meantime, and the matter then transferred to the court to see what would happen next. So the essential question for the judge of the first instance, Mr Justice Fraser, was whether a company in liquidation was entitled to adjudicate a claim for payment. Lonsdale argued, as Steve mentioned, that Bresco's claim and Lonsdale's cross-claim had cancelled each other out by the process of insolvency set-off. This meant there was no longer any claim and therefore any dispute under the contract, so adjudication was unavailable, the jurisdiction point. In any case, the adjudicator's decision would not be enforced until the liquidator had calculated the net balance, so an adjudication was pointless in any event, the futility point. Mr Justice Fraser accepted both of these points and granted the injunction to stop the adjudication. Following an appeal by Bresco, the Court of Appeal rejected the jurisdiction point but upheld the injunction on the basis of the futility point. The stage was set for the final showdown in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has now unanimously allowed the appeal and dismissed Lonsdale's cross appeal with the result that the adjudication can go ahead. Now, looking at the two points, firstly, the jurisdiction point. The Supreme Court concluded that the adjudicator does have jurisdiction. The insolvency set off between Bresco's claim and Lonsdale's cross claim did not mean that there is no longer a dispute under the construction contract or that the claims have simply melted away. Despite insolvency set off, Bresco would have been allowed to bring court proceedings to determine the value of its claim, and it therefore follows that Bresco must be able to refer its claim to adjudication. In relation to the futility point, well, the Court of Appeal had thought there was a basic incompatibility between adjudication and insolvency set off. 
if the adjudicator found in favour of Bresco, the courts would refuse to enforce the award because it would interfere with the insolvency process. The adjudication would therefore be a futile waste of resources. But the Supreme Court rejected that view. Bresco had a statutory and contractual right to adjudication, and it would ordinarily be inappropriate for the court to interfere with that right. Now, the Supreme Court optimistically suggested that adjudication might be a simple and proportionate method for Bresco's liquidators to determine the net balance on the basis that most adjudication decisions are never challenged in court. I'd say in my experience, many adjudications are not in fact the end of the story. And while they not, may not be challenged in, in litigation for a final determination, in reality, there's often further adjudications or a negotiated settlement. Adjudicators' decisions aren't simply accepted where there are cross-claims. So I think the key decision in most cases is now like to be whether the adjudicator's decision can be enforced if the referring party is insolvent. And the Supreme Court acknowledged that summary enforcement will frequently be unavailable in these circumstances, where enforcement would deprive the responding party of its right to set off cross-claims. The insolvency practitioners that in particular operate in the construction field, they're, they're quite euphoric about this, uh, and their point, their position is that it basically restores to them a vital tool that quite frankly was unfairly denied them in resolving sums due. Andrew, do you feel that there's any validity in that? Is it going to open up the floodgates? Can you see any reasons why, from your point of view, that the Supreme Court got it wrong? I think it's certainly the case that there will be inevitably some liquidators and their advisors that will now see this as a potential tool in their armory to collect debts. And without a doubt, we are going to see some interesting enforcement cases now, which are going to test the boundaries of the circumstances in which liquidators can enforce these sorts of decisions. It's difficult probably to say that there's a floodgates argument here, but it would seem to me undoubtedly that parties that have entered into a, a contract with, uh, for example, say a contractor that then goes into liquidation is likely now to be faced with more adjudications than otherwise it had if the whole position had stayed as it was with regard to court of appeal position on, on futility. And of course, that will lead, I think, to possibly frustration by non-solvent parties that have to incur the not necessarily insignificant costs of adjudications to determine issues. You can see from a, a purely theoretical point of view, for want of a better word, that, that there is use in, if you're looking at that issue of the net balance, there is use of uh, an adjudication award plugging in those, some of those figures at its minimum into what will be the, the the ultimate assessment of what is that net balance. So it seems to me that I, I do think it will exacerbate the issues of adjudication. And in particular, of course, we are probably heading into a point with the industry at the moment contracting by a considerable amount, I think about 30 or 40% over these last few months because of COVID. Undoubtedly, there will be sadly more companies that will not survive this and so I suspect that practitioners and people within the industry are going to be faced with these sort of, of issues for some time. If we just touch then upon Andrew what you've talked about which is this issue of enforcement. There's an interesting statement or at least I find it interesting uh, in any event uh, as a construction lawyer. A paragraph 65 of Lord Briggs's judgment, it's a very short judgment, and he says this, 
in relation to enforcement, because obviously the discussion went in relation to futility, that basically you're never going to get these decisions enforced, so what's the point? And he said this in relation to this. Furthermore, it will not be in every case that summary enforcement will be inappropriate. There may be no dispute about the cross-claim. And he said this, or the disputed cross-claim may be found to be of no substance. Andrew, have you got any thoughts about how a court in an enforcement setting can make a pretty quick judgment on whether or not a cross-claim has any substance or not? Because I personally find that it's going to be a difficult task in the very short time frames that a court will have to operate. Yes, I'm very much inclined to agree with you there, Steve. I think in practice, unless the cross-claims are clearly fanciful and have just been concocted to avoid enforcement, in most cases on a summary judgment application to enforce an adjudicator's award, the court's just simply not going to get into the detail about whether a cross-claim exists or not, if there's any evidence at all to suggest that it might. And of course, construction projects tend to be quite complicated and give rise to all manner of face value legitimate cross-claims. So I wouldn't have thought that would be, of, uh, in, in most cases, a particular assistance to somebody trying to enforce an award. The other point you touched upon in the answer earlier relates to enforcement and certainly the court of appeal in bresco talked about enforcement and the fact that enforcement of an adjudicated decision in the context of a company in liquidation would only be given in exceptional circumstances in relation to that i think if i'm if i recall andrew there's a case medicide the hill street management which deals with that i think adam constable qc sitting as a judge dealt with with those matters can you just go through for the audience just some of the conditions that he said would be appropriate i think in this in that particular instance he wasn't minded to to give the enforcement but he set out some guidelines if i can recall as to how you could get an enforcement in place yes he gave us some clues as to what might be factors that enable a case to be the exception allows it to be enforced so the first factor was the adjudicator dealing with a final net position between the parties under the relevant contract, which would effectively exclude smash and grab adjudications by their very nature aren't looking at the final net position, but seeking to take advantage of one party's failure to serve a pay less notice. The next factor might be satisfactory security being provided in respect of any sum awarded in the adjudication. So it could be repaid if overturned in the future and in respect of any adverse costs order made against the insolvent company. And that might cover both the adjudication enforcement and future litigation or arbitration costs. It will be a question of fact, what is satisfactory security? But for example, suggestions are the liquidator undertaking to ring fence the adjudication sum and possibly a guarantee, a bond or after the event insurance so that the insolvent company is good for any potential future liability to pay legal fees. And finally, any funding agreement or security must not be an exclusive process. And it was, I think, on that point that the claimant in this particular case, Meadowside, uh, fell foul. But there's obviously sufficient wriggle room there, I, I think, to give liquidators and their funders hope that if properly structured, it might be possible to enforce these sorts of decisions. And that's going to be a very interesting area to watch develop in the coming months. To add to that, I think there's a further case, isn't there, Bath for BTV uh, as tech, where in that particular instance, there was three adjudications which were to be launched under three separate contracts. In that instance, the court was willing to 
allow that to proceed on the basis that the resolution of these three issues under three separate contracts would in effect address the net position going then back to the net balance discussion. Also, the court imposed the condition that you had to have the same adjudicator, presumably, so that you would have a sort of consistency. There was also a security for costs needed to be stumped up for 750000 I think that the insolvent company had offered 250000 And Alpha BT had to, well, there was a timetable for the adjudication. It had to happen quickly. So this thing couldn't be hanging over Balfour Beatty for poor amount of time. But also then Balfour Beatty had to commence court proceedings insofar as it wanted to effectively reverse any decisions of either of the three adjudications within a six-month period, uh, failing which you could enforce. So I think you're right, Andrew. I think what this is going to have is it's going to help a plethora of people pushing the boundaries and trying to investigate ways in which, in particular, uh, the insolvency practitioners can get at and use adjudication from their point of view to the, the maximum extent, which might play a little bit with regard to a liquidator being able to play that card slightly to enforce some sort of settlements. And secondly, then, as you say, even for enforcement, the industry that deals with this gets together and produces a product which works for the courts. So, so I suppose, Andrew, looking at all this in, the, in its entirety, I think it will be the case, won't it, that certainly liquidators will use this as a tool far more frequently and then potentially use it as a leverage to, to be able to presumably uh, seek to get some uh, settlements because if not, the non-insolvent party will be potentially dragged through potentially a series of adjudications with all the cost consequences in particular not being able to recover your costs against that. So that's one area that I think that this will, for want of a better word, give a green light to. The second point, and maybe you can just have a, a quick observation on this, is whether or not those within the industry, uh, Andrew, can get together a product which fits the criteria set out by Adam Constable in Meadowside and presumably then ultimately endorsed in Balfour Beatty. I don't know whether or not your observations attune with mine or have you got different observations? And of course, if you have, then you're not allowed. (laughs) Happily, I, I tend to agree with you there, Steve. I think it's going to be very interesting to watch and see as the case law becomes more mature, as more of these cases are now brought, enforcement cases by liquidators, perhaps as the funding mechanisms used by liquidators become more mature, then it it may be that either the market drives up and actually you don't tend to see these claims anymore because it becomes, in practical terms, very difficult to enforce, or it could go the other way. And actually, if, if they liquidators can, can find funding mechanisms that allow them to bring these sorts of claims and persuade the courts to allow them to enforce, then you may indeed get the floodgates of future claims, which is probably great news for lawyers and very bad news for solvent parties facing claims from liquidators. I think with the conclusion it's great news for lawyers, that's a brilliant position to com- to finish on so i think there's an element of, of watching this space isn't there so um i suppose it, it, it's just for me to i'll say goodbye to andrew because of course we're remote i hope everyone's safe in their home houses and uh, we'll hopefully 
uh, as Vera Lynn once said, we will meet again. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.